get a prayer life. And how do you get a prayer life when you're in one of those places in life where the grace of God in your life is under all kinds of pressure? Such was the case with Daniel. We're beginning a series of messages today from the book of Daniel. They're outlined on your worship bulletin, your Rocky Mountain Connection. And we're going to look and watch the life and the story of Daniel's life over the next number of weeks and how, under a lot of pressure, Daniel stayed faithful to the Lord. And not only that, but Daniel saw and experienced the work of God in his life and the work of God all around his life. Now, as you're turning to Daniel chapter 1, or if you have it on an app on your phone, like my son does, as you're turning on your phone uh, to Daniel chapter 1, allow me to give you the background of this passage of scripture that we're going to look at and the background for the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 1 takes place in the Babylonian court of 605 to 606 BC. Now to give you some background to what's happening here, the nation of Israel prior to Daniel chapter 1 in the book of Daniel had divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom being the kingdom of Judah, the rest of the tribes of Israel being the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel fades off the scene by the time you get to the book of Daniel. So the only Israelite kingdom that you have at this time is the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, they are in a difficult situation. And the problem is this. Nebuchadnezzar has risen on the scene... And he is the leader of the Babylonian kingdom. And the Babylonian kingdom in 605 to 606 is the rising power on the scene in the Middle East. It occupies what we know today as southern Iraq. And as his kingdom comes on the scene, Nebuchadnezzar becomes the most powerful ruler. As was often the case in those days, if you can imagine this, if you were leading a powerful kingdom, you begin to look around the world and begin to decide what nations you wanted to conquer to expand your kingdom. And so he begins to look around, and he begins to go after one kingdom after another. He conquers the Egyptians, for example, and he looks over at Judah, and he decides, man, that's another acquisition that I would love to make for my kingdom. And so he lays siege to the city of Jerusalem and to the nation of Judah in 606 B.C., it isn't that much of a siege. He's got this huge army. They're all prepared for battle. And the Jehoiakim, who is the king of Judah, is quickly intimidated. And instead of even raising a fight up, he just yields to Nebuchadnezzar. And it becomes like a vassal state. Now, in those days when you took over a nation, you didn't necessarily occupy it. What you would do is you would tell the king that you had conquered that they were your vassal and they would have to pay tribute or taxes to you. And you would sort of act as a puppet government. Now when he goes into Jerusalem, the next thing that Nebuchadnezzar does after getting the king underneath his thumb is that he goes into the temple of God and he takes vessels out of the temple and he takes them back to a place called Shinar, which we believe is where the ancient tower of Babel was located. And there he places the vessels out of the temple of God from Jerusalem into the temple of Nebuchadnezzar's God. Now, there is symbolic significance in this. The ancients believed that if you went into a kingdom and you conquered that kingdom and you took the physical, visible signs 
of that kingdom. In other words, things from that kingdom's God, vessels from their temple, etc. And you place them into the temple of your God, that your, the God that had, of the nation that had been conquered was now subject to the conquering nation's God. So in other words, when they took the vessels out of the temple in Jerusalem and placed them into Nebuchadnezzar's temple of his God, that was a powerful way of saying the God of Judah, Yahweh, is now subject to the God of Babylon. And that he is in line now with the God of Babylon. The next thing that they would do is they would go in, and Nebuchadnezzar does this, as we will see today and in the chapters that we will go through in the upcoming weeks. They also would go in as the conquering power, and they would look for the most intelligent, good-looking, on top of it, folks they could find. In other words, the leaders of Judah are those who were the promising leaders of Judah, and they would take them and deport them back to Babylon. And the reason for that is that they were going to try to brainwash them and equip them and train them to become leaders in Babylon. It also had the effect of creating an intellectual and talent void in Judah so that you didn't have to worry about the nation you had conquered giving you trouble because all their leaders were gone. And now you were going to try to press them into becoming leaders in your kingdom. So when Babylon goes in following the tenants of that day, they have a comprehensive approach to totally weaken Judah and to totally strengthen Babylon. And this is where we're going to pick up today with Daniel and his three friends. And they are going to be on a journey of discovery that God is in control even when everything suggests that he is out of control. That God is in control even when everything in life seems to suggest that God is not in control. In fact, it may suggest that God is just subject to everything everybody else is. Now, the guys that you're going to meet in this passage, Daniel and his three friends, are three or four guys that we believe were probably around 15 to 16 years of age when this takes place. And the reason we believe that they were that young is 70 years later, when the captivity of Judah ends, Daniel... And the guys are still on the scene. So in order for them to be on the scene 70 years later, they have to be really young now. So I want you to imagine as I read this, this is not happening to experienced men. This is happening to four guys that were about 15 to 16 years of age. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now verse 2 is a very critical verse in this whole passage. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them, at his Nebuchadnezzar, to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a portion of the food 
that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the ewes who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the ewes who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the ewes who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four ewes, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now my sermon outline is contained in your Rocky Mount Connection on the first page, and I invite you, if you would, to follow along with me. Verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Now, get the picture. Daniel and his friends are in Jerusalem. They can't get out because the Babylonian army has besieged the city. And the king gives up, and this conquering army comes in and begins to take over everything. They take over the king, they take over all the guys, they go to Daniel and his friends and say, get your stuff together, we're deporting you back to Babylon. And then they in horror watch them go into the temple and begin to pull the vessels out of the temple and take it out. If you'd been standing there that day as a Jew, no doubt you would have thought, where in the world is the Lord God? Where is Yahweh, personal name of God, the great and powerful Yahweh? His temple is being desecrated. Things are being taken out of his temple. Where is God? But verse 2 says that the Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. You see, what on the surface looked like that Nebuchadnezzar was in charge 
God in his own deeply mysterious, purposeful way was accomplishing his will. So often it is difficult for us to understand and to comprehend the hand of grace. What God is doing and what God is accomplishing because it doesn't appear like God is accomplishing anything. Often it appears that God is being sidetracked and he's being overtaken by the circumstances of the day when in reality God is at work accomplishing his purpose in his way. The word there which says that the Lord gave is the personal name for God or the name for God Adonai. It means possessor and owner of all. Possessor and owner of all. In other words, the reason that the writer here uses the name Adonai is he is saying God possessed that hour. God owned that hour. God was in control in that hour even though it appeared that he was not in control of that hour. He was working out his purpose. And folks, the sovereignty of God always gives us comfort in knowing that he is in control and he is working out a purpose. But what we have to do is we have to be dependent to see through eyes of faith. In other words, it takes eyes of faith, believing the Lord and trusting the Lord, that God, you're at work in a situation, even when it appears that you are not at work in a situation. Now, he says that he took the vessels out. Why did God allow the vessels to go out of the temple? Because those vessels represented in the people's mind the presence of God and the work of God. So as the vessels are coming out of the temple, they're sitting there thinking, my gracious, look, the vessels are coming out. Nebuchadnezzar is controlling God. Then they're placed in Nebuchadnezzar's mind. He takes them and places them in his temple in Shinar, which means that they are, God is being controlled by the Babylonian God. But do you remember the Ten Commandments back in Exodus chapter 20 where God said, Do not make a graven image of me? Why did God say that? Because God wanted them to understand that you cannot take the power of God, the presence of God, and all that God is and confine it to something that is visible visible and tangible that can be taken and manipulated. God cannot be controlled. And anytime we begin to associate the presence of God so much with a building or a thing or whatever it is that's visible and tangible, we are breaking that commandment and we are stepping into territory where we begin to think, no man, whatever happens to that physical, visible thing, that's going to be what's happening to God. That's determining whether God's in control or not. But you can't contain God to a building. You can't contain God to symbolism. You can't contain him to that which we can see, we can touch, we can handle. And so God sit back there and he's saying, okay, take the vessels. I could care less. You're not controlling me. I'm not contained to some vessel in the temple. I created this world. You can take the temple, you can throw the vessels in there before your God all you want to. But I'm over his temple, I'm over Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm going to prove how powerful I am. Now, notice the pressure, verses 1 through 8, that these guys, when they get to Babylon, are under and how they are trying to control them. We'll get to the name piece in a few moments. But notice that it says they got these youth, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. In verse 4, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and then notice what it says, teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. First thing is drop your language and pick up our language. In other words, assimilate into our culture. Now, let's talk about the literature that they had to learn. 
This would have been a literature that would have been teaching them the creation epics of the ancient world. Some of you may remember from your studies the Gilgamesh epic. That's one of the things they would have been learning. They would have learned the flood story from the perspective of the Babylonian gods. They would have been studying astrology and divination, all hostile to faith in God. Can you imagine you're sitting in there and you've grown up through your first 15 to 16 years of life there in Jerusalem being taught what God, Yahweh God did and suddenly you find yourself taken to Babylon and you're sitting there and you're being taught that this God of Babylon was the one who really created the world. And this is how he did it. You're being taught that there was a flood but the biblical story that you've grown up with is not right and that this particular epic from ancient history that the Babylonians have put together is how this world was flooded. There's not a whole lot of difference between what they were being indoctrinated in and what our culture today indoctrinates us in is that God didn't have anything to do with creation and there never really was a flood. And they were just being indoctrinated in these perspectives of learning. Then he wants to change their food. He's trying to capture both their mind and their body. Catch what they're doing. They're separating these guys from their community, their teaching, their diet, their change of identity with their names, and teaching them to adopt Babylonian culture and to change their allegiance from the Lord God to the gods of Babylon. Now, let's talk about the food issue because that's the really sticking point that comes up. Verse 8. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So Daniel comes and he says, I don't want to eat this food and drink the king's wine. And so I'm a respectfully request that I can eat vegetables and drink water. Now that was really bold and pushing the limit. Because if he got back to Nebuchadnezzar, that they, was, they were asking not to do it and refusing to eat his food, it would be a tremendous insult, and he can have them killed. So Daniel is really stepping out, because Nebuchadnezzar doesn't really know who Daniel is at this point. So they are really pushing the envelope, so to speak, when they ask for this. Now, the ancient world is sort of interesting, and to catch what's going on here with this food situation, I, I want to give you some of the culture of that day. If you were a warrior in that day, and these things are depicted in Babylonian art, if you were a warrior that day, you were sort of sleek and muscular, etc. But if you were a wise man back in that day, which was what Daniel and his friends were being trained in, you were depicted, and this is what he's trying to accomplish with having them eat the king's food and drink the king's wine. First of all, wise men were depicted as bald. And the older I get, the more I like that. <laughs> Baldness was a sign of wisdom. Second, you were big-eyed. That was a symbol of intelligence. Bigger your eyes were, the more intelligent you were. And you were chubby. Being chubby was a symbol in the ancient Babylonian world of being wise. See, some of you that are listening to me today are wise, and you didn't even realize you were wise. And 
It's all got to do with just being a little chubby side. And literally what he is trying to do is fatten them up because being over what we would consider overweight in our culture in that day and age was considered very, being a really good looking and so forth. You'll notice that in the passage here it talks about how that they were fatter. Well, that's literally the idea because they were trying to get them fatter because weight in the ancient Babylonian culture was emblematic of being wise and being on top of your program and was considered attractive. If you were a guy and you were walking around or a lady and you were thin and, you know, like our culture teaches us and et cetera, as being something attractive, they didn't consider you attractive. They sort of thought you emaciated. Um, so that's the idea of what they're trying to do here from a physiological perspective and making those guys attractive to them. Now, Daniel says he doesn't want to eat the food and no one drink the water. It's not because he's a, a health guy and he just wants to go work out in the gym, etc. Okay? This is the reason we believe Daniel said no to the food. First of all, to accept and eat food given by the king was to commit yourself in a loyal allegiance to the king. In other words, if Daniel said, okay, I'll take the food and I'll eat it, he was saying, I'm committing myself to Nebuchadnezzar. And he is the ultimate authority in my life. And for Daniel, God was the ultimate authority in his life. When Daniel looked at that food, he thought, how can I accept this food and eat this food? And by so doing, saying that Nebuchadnezzar is the authority in my life, when he just took the vessels out of God's temple and tried to desecrate God's temple. I have one authority. Now think about this. you got a 16-year-old standing there in the Babylonian court with no one to defend him, essentially saying to Nebuchadnezzar and his court, I serve the Lord God and I serve him only and I'm not going to eat his food and by so doing demonstrate that my allegiance is to Nebuchadnezzar because my ultimate allegiance is to the Lord. That was gutsy. He knew that could cost him his life. Now notice what they do next. They changed their names. In the ancient world, to change someone's name was to give them new ownership and a new allegiance. To give them new ownership and a new allegiance. So the idea is that if we change these guys' names, their allegiance is now going to be to Babylon and no longer to Judah, and it will no longer be to the Lord God. Now let's look at the names, verse 7. The name Daniel means God is my judge. In other words, I am accountable to the Lord God. It holds a high view of God. We're not told anything about Daniel's parents, but when their, his parents gave him the name Daniel, and names in those days were very, very significant. In our culture, we tend to name children after members of the family. But in the ancient world, they named you according to what they believed was going to be how God was going to use you or the relationship you potentially could have with the Lord. And so Daniel's parents named him Daniel because they were saying, God is your judge, a high view of God. Now his name is changed to Belteshazzar, besides taking forever probably to learn how to spell it. Um, what were they trying to say by calling him Belteshazzar? The god of Babylon's name was Bel. He was the patron god of Babylon. And so essentially what Daniel's new name of Belteshazzar means is, God is no longer my judge. I am answering to and serving Bel. You see the identity change. 
of what they're trying to accomplish here. You don't identify with God anymore and as his servant. You identify with our God, Bill. Second, Hananiah means God is gracious. His name is changed to Shadrach, which means to be illumined by the sun God. Mishael in Hebrew means who is like God. Meshach, who is like Venice. And Azariah's name is changed to Abednego, which we're not really sure what that name meant. So they're trying to change their identity. Your name means that you now identify with the gods of Babylon and you serve them. It's interesting throughout the rest of this book that Daniel is referred to, even by Nebuchadnezzar, as Daniel. In other words, he stuck so solidly to serving God that even the name change did not work with the king. Now, the Lord Jesus, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, indicates that we're going to face this kind of pressure. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. In those days when salt lost its ability to carry out the properties of salt, they literally took it and threw it on the ground, and people walked over it. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it in, under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that, you may, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying, listen, I have specifically, intentionally designed you to be salt in this world, and I have designed you to be light. You've got to keep your saltiness. You've got to keep the light in you shining out, which means you've got to commit yourself to me. You've got to be loyal to me. Folks, this world is always working like as it did with those guys to shape us and to mold us into its image. It puts all kinds of pressure on us to shape us and mold us, to think like this world, act like this world, relate like this world, etc. And what Jesus is saying here is you've got to be willing to be salt, which means you're going to be different. You've got to be willing to be light in the midst of darkness, which is going to be different. You've got to be willing to stand up for me. And if you're not willing to stand up for me, then you're not going to make any impression on this earth. There will always be pressure to conform to this world and its culture. But you and I have got to be willing to do like Daniel and say, I'm not going to give in, but my loyalty is to Jesus and I'm going to stand up for him. And folks, we live in a world today where the church in the United States is coming under con continuous pressure. My son attends Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. They were told they could not meet in their building because of COVID, nor were they allowed to meet in the city of Washington, D.C. and hold a worship service. Even though there have been protests and demonstrations in Washington that that restriction has not been placed on, the churches could not do it. So that church went to court a few weeks ago to get the right to meet and worship the Lord God. They won their court case. I talked to my son last night, and he said, today at some park in D.C., we're going to meet to worship. I have problems when we tell demonstrators they can demonstrate, but the church cannot meet publicly to worship God. 
And I understand the COVID thing, but when it's being applied so differently from one group to another, in my opinion, there's a problem there. And what we have got to be willing to do on any issue as the church is stand up and say, we're going to stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. And our loyalty is ultimately and finally to him. And on those small issues on our jobs and our neighborhoods and our families when we have to stand up for him and be salt and be light, it is going to be difficult to do that, but we've got to be willing to do that. Now, I want you to see as we move in this passage, verses 9 through 21, what happens with these guys. Verse 15. After they had done this for the period of time they asked for, how God blessed at the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. There's that idea again. Of they, they, they put on some pounds and they looked good. and they, That was a symbol of the blessing of the Lord. You know, I love that because that means this afternoon I can just eat my head off. And if I gain weight, it's a sign of the blessing of God. Just, just joking, all right? Notice it says about Daniel, beginning verse 17, and those guys, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. In other words, because of his commitment to the Lord, God gave Daniel the ability to receive a vision and dreams from him. Now, he would later use this in powerful ways with King Nebuchadnezzar, and with the other kings that would come on the scene because he would eventually serve three different kings. At the end of that time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Follow what happens in the story. Because of their commitment to personal holiness, to be sold out to God and to not compromise, God blessed them. God used them. God positioned in Daniel's case, he was positioned to be used with three different kings. The current king, Nebuchadnezzar, and the two kings that would follow him. And he ended up serving the Lord through two different empires. Folks, when we are committed to Jesus, and we will not compromise our walk with him and our stand for him, it's not just about us. It's God positioning us for how he wants to take us and use us. Notice verse 9. It says that God gave Daniel favor. He demonstrated his grace through Daniel under really difficult circumstances. God demonstrated that he is not dependent on the atmosphere around and the circumstances around his servant in order to bless his servant and use his servant. And he demonstrated that he uniquely positioned Daniel in that situation to know God's blessing. Because Daniel said, I'm going to live for his honor. Now, can you imagine the position that Daniel was in? 
Daniel's sitting there in Jerusalem, minding his own business, being a good guy, growing up, teenager, etc. And he looks around, and he starts seeing everybody freaking out because the Babylonian army is coming down to town. And they start throwing up the ramparts around Jerusalem, pulling up the gates, and then they look out and they see that they are surrounded by the Babylonian army. A few days, the city of Jerusalem caves in, this army, invading army, moves in, and Daniel and his three friends are put on a cart, and they are literally carted off to Babylon. They look in the back, in the rearview mirror, so to speak, and what do they see? They see their city conquered. They see the temple of God plundered. And the easiest thing in the world would have been for them to give up. The easiest thing in the world for them would be when they got to Babylon to just say, well, Babylon's conquered everything. We just might as well give up. And God didn't show up and do a blooming thing. But they didn't. And it would have been so easy for them to say, man, it was really great back then. But things are only going to get worse. We're conquered. We're slaves of Babylon. Things are only going to get worse. How many Christians go around confessing that things are only going to get worse? That seems to have become our mantra in 2020. Things are only going to get worse. But with God, things can only get better. And what Daniel and his three friends made a decision is not to sit in Babylon and say things are only going to get worse, but to say we're here to serve God. We don't know how God's going to do it. That's his issue, not mine. My job is to be loyal and courageous to him. His job is to take care of this. But we're not looking for things to get worse. We are looking for things to get better. And that is exactly what God did. You see, folks, God positions us where it may look by human eyes that things are only going to get worse. But if we will stick with him and be loyal to him and confess what this book says about him, things are only going to get better because ultimately he controls the future and what's going to happen. That's his grace under pressure. And his grace thrives under pressure. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you that you are in control. And we serve you who are in control. And Lord, we confess this day that things are not going to get worse. They're going to get better. Not because we hope it, we think it, we like it, we psych ourselves up about it, but because... You, God, are in control. And Jesus, the getting better meant that you positioned those guys, those four young men, to be powerfully used of you in that kingdom. To know your hand, to know your presence, to know what it was for you to use them. And to take them, Lord, in a strange, weird place and use them, God, in a powerful way. Lord, when we are so tempted to just say, well, it's just going to get worse, 
to realize that you are in control and you will accomplish that which you set out to accomplish one way or another. Thank you, Jesus, that we can be part of your kingdom's work. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we want to invite you today, if you have never made a decision, to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and to follow him, that you will make the decision today, the most important decision you'll ever make in life, to say to him, Lord Jesus, I want to know you, I want to serve you, and I want to follow you. And this day, I make that decision, Jesus, to follow you. Lord, we bless you and we praise you this day in your name. Amen.